Welcome back to another episode of Spirits Rising, the student Christian movement podcast where we question everything we've been taught about faith. I'm Esther, she, her pronouns. And I'm Doug, pronouns they, them. Listen to our unfiltered discussions with awesome guests as we explore liberating spiritualities true to our experiences. Our guest today is Mother Maggie Helwig, priest at the Anglican Church of St. Stephen in the Fields. Maggie is also a lifelong activist concerned with colonial violence and poverty, as well as a published poet and novelist. We've invited her today to talk about her essay, Non Nobis Domine, A Theology of Money, published in 2016 as the core of an Anglican Church resource on the subject. Dunk, I remember you were really excited when I first mentioned this as a potential podcast topic, um, as Divi was. Um, What was it about the concept of a theology of money that grabbed you? Yeah, for for me, uh, you know, church and money were very separate ideas. We didn't much talk about money at my home church growing up, and it was never mentioned at our masjid either. Though later on, I did come to learn that most of my family was giving a regular percentage of their income to the masjid for supporting fellow Muslim families in the Middle East who were suffering due to war and violence. Though we learned about two years in that this money was actually just going to the imam's family back in the United Arab Emirates, the UAE. Yeah, so, you know, not actually going to those who, who truly needed it. Um, and we just we immediately like left that masjid and started going to another one that was far more transparent with their books. And, you know, that was my first experience with money in a religious setting. And it's left a very poor taste in my mouth ever since. Um, we can talk more about Islam and money after the interview, though. Um, in a Christian setting, though, when my family moved to Toronto, our United Church congregation was very transparent with the books um, to all members of the church, and I was on the payroll since I was legally able to work, and most of that work was in things like food justice and community support. Um, so it was a weird, I guess, kind of look into how the church was financing you know, these efforts against, I guess, a, a capitalist society. Um, The United Church itself has made a lot of recent efforts to divest their wealth from fossil fuels and the like in the past decade, Um, but we also aren't supporting our rural congregations as we should. So perhaps a better understanding of the theological framework around income and wealth disparity can help shape how I approach the UCC in the future to advocate for better support to those who need it. Yeah. Yeah, that, that resonates insofar as I, I grew up in a congregation um, where you know, there were a lot of fairly open conversations around money and um, you know, how, how the way we spend our money reflects our priorities, um, how we allocate our resources as a community, um, and particularly around um, supporting, supporting people in need in the community. Um, at the same time, I 
feel like kind of the the missing the missing piece um, in church conversations is has often been kind of a more systemic perspective. Um, I remember a, a few years back, um, shortly after Maggie published her essay, um, she was invited to do a workshop on theology of money at the SCM's Cahoots Festival. Um, and a whole lot of people came to that workshop with very practical questions around, you know, sh- how should I manage my family budget? Um, you know, how how should I be thinking about investments and savings? And, you know, what are the more most ethical options for those? Um, Which is and... like very much not what the paper is really about, is it? <laughs> no, it's, um, that's... That's the piece that's uh, that's trickier for churches to engage with is this you know a systemic um, analysis of our our economic system um, and how it shapes our our communities our personal lives uh, our collective lives um, and and what and what you know what small things we can do as communities to work for systemic change rather than um, rather than focusing on small scale redistribution, which is still very important and necessary. Um, but before we get further into this, um, I would love to chat with Maggie. Hey, let's do it. for our listeners your theological framework for money and wealth maybe talking about how the paper uh started or or what caused it or, or what inspired you um yeah it it's not really a matter of anything inspiring me um in fact although i'm very happy to have written the paper and very proud of the contents of it um but the reverend jeffrey metcalf had the idea of forming a subcommittee of faith, worship, and ministry at the National Church, which would look at money from a theological perspective, because his sense was that there's a lot of talk about money around the church, but it's mostly about um, do we have enough money to make our expenses for the year, and how can we get people to give money to the church, not looking at broader questions of economics and justice and global economic systems and what's going on theologically with this. Because properly speaking, everything is theological. Everything needs to be looked at through a theological lens. Um, And money perhaps more so than most. Um, The Bible talks about money constantly. And, and talks about it in some quite unexpected and challenging ways. And there was not much reflection happening on that. So uh, a group was struck. It was myself and a number of other people. And we spent probably over a year having fascinating discussions with each other um, and not being sure what we were supposed to 
come up with at the end of all this. And finally, I just said, well, you know what, I'll just write a paper because um, I have ideas and, you know, we can see if we like it. And everybody liked it. There were some rewrites. There's some work on it. Um, so it, it is partly a, a product of the whole group as well as, as mine. But the, the key point, you know, I've been reading a lot about the global economy. I've been reading a lot about the economic, <clears throat> the economic basis of a, a lot of the problems that we're facing, the debt-based economy, the increasingly profoundly imaginary nature of global economies, and yet an imaginary construct which has huge, powerful, devastating, unavoidable impacts on real lives of real people. And turning all this around, and I happened as part of the daily office to be reading Psalm 116, which is about idolatry and idol worship. And as I read that, I thought, this is, this is it. This is exactly what we're talking about. It's about creating a construct which has no life, and then allowing that construct to control you until you become the thing that you have created. Hands have they and handle not. Noses have they and smell not. The global economy has no humanity. It has no life in it, and yet it is controlling lives, and it is reshaping lives into lives which serve the interest of the economy rather than the interest of the actual creatures. Um, and once I'd sort of seen that Psalm 116 idolatry connection, writing the rest of the paper really became very easy. So that's, that's kind of the core of what I'm, what I'm talking about, the way that the global economic system functions in order to reshape us into creatures whose primary purpose is to continue the global economic system. This abstract system which we created is running us, and running us in ways which are very bad for our humanity, um, regardless of where you fall on the scale, um, creating tremendous deprivation, um, tremendous anxiety, tremendous inequality, tremendous dehumanization, detachment, um, massive environmental damage, as we're increasingly seeing as the climate crisis escalates. And, and all of this is based on thinking, our thinking of money, as if it were both natural and neutral as if it's just, it's a thing like the weather, or it's a thing like how vegetables grow, like it's a real thing in the real world. But it's not. It's a thing we created and we made up, and it's doing us and the planet tremendous damage. And we can't just act as if this is, this is just how it is. Yeah, I, yeah, very much resonate with that. I mean, I for the past couple of years, I've never been fully paying off my credit cards because I know if I leave a certain amount of balance and, and make regular payments, even though I'm paying more in interest, that further boosts my credit score rather than just fully paying off the credit cards every time. 
And, you know, I'm doing that to boost my credit score because I know that as soon as I'm out of school, that student debt is going to lower that credit score and it's going to make it harder to afford a home, right? And so I'm paying all this interest now as a starving master's student um, so that I can hopefully one day, like, afford a house. But Which like, is also debt. You know, you will incur massive debt by purchasing it. This is a system which is absolutely built on debt and therefore needs to compel people to incur debt exactly exactly and it's and that the old testament is extremely clear that this is a really sinful way of proceeding precisely so so it's like currently i'm i'm doing this master's program in theology reading the old testament reading the new testament seeing what the scriptures say and yet i feel obligated to participate in this because if i don't then it's going to be it's going to make my life harder right? It's, it's not neutral. It, it, as you were saying, it's, it's not a neutral force. It is a force that is being used against very large amounts of the population. Um, and that's something very important and vital to, to mention. But I guess maybe what I'd like to do is narrow the scope a little bit. And I'd like to ask, uh, what, you know, what are you aiming to address in the, chur- in the current like, church culture surrounding this? Because this is obviously, you know, more of a theological framework, of course, but, you know, there does seem to be uh, a, I don't know, something there challenging the current system that we have in our own church liturgy or theology or practices or recommendations. So, so what, is, what are you currently aiming to address in the current church culture in that regard? I think really primarily just the, the awareness, just to try to, to people in the church as much as people anywhere else think of our economic system as a natural, neutral, unavoidable, and morally, morally, morally neutral thing, which, which we can just sort of we, which we participate in without really thinking about. Uh, all I'm really trying to do is, is make people think about how we participate in the economic system and look at whether there are choices we can make differently. I mean, we are very constrained in this system. As you've pointed out, the system will punish you if you do not obey, if you do not conform, if you do not act in ways that are to the benefit of the system, the system will punish you mercilessly. <laughs> so we are quite limited uh, in the choices that we can make, unfortunately. Um, but at least to be aware that we are making choices, that we are, whether we like it or not, participating in a system which is deeply problematic, and that we need to look at what means we have to escape that. The, the book of Revelation is an often very misread book, but a great deal of what it's about is do you have the courage to stop participating in the economic system? Because that's what the author is demanding of his readers, um, and he is absolutely aware of what it costs. He is absolutely aware that it is often a life or death decision. Um, John of Patmos had no mercy. John of Patmos was like, you know, you accept the emperor's coin, forget it, forget you. You're going down with Babylon. Um, but, you know, chills. if on the other hand, they'll kill you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, John, 
John was not happy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but I, I mean, you know, being so aware of, you know, these economic systems and, and how they're actively uh, working against, you know, the population and, and such, um, you know, I, I guess it would hard to, it would be hard to, uh, to stay happy, I guess. Um, so would, would it be safe to say that your paper is more aimed towards starting the discussion in churches and, and start discussing, you know, the way in which this is not a neutral force, but rather it is a force that is actively working against us? Yes. Uh, I mean, at one point, one of the things we had hoped to do was to have different people from the working group talk about their own context and how they see economic forces operating in their context and what the possibilities for resistance in their specific communities and contexts might be. And I think that would have been really helpful if we had pulled it together because it is like many things in theology, very contextual, very much about analyzing your own situation. And the paper is, I think you're right, just hoping to start that conversation and hoping that people can look at their contexts and say, how are economic forces operating on us, on our community, on our on the community that surrounds us, and what are what are the possibilities of resistance in this particular context? Yeah, if I can uh, jump in, um, remember that in your theology of money essay, of uh, the first contextual example that that you gave of. Um, this kind of consciousness of money and how it functions in society um, is uh, the the Occupy movement in 2011, um, which you described as a transformative moment in our society's understanding of money. Um, so I I was an undergrad at the time, uh, and I remember Occupy as a very exciting event that sparked a lot of conversations about wealth disparity and economic injustice. Um, it popularized the language of the 99% and the 1%. Um, and I'm wondering in the decades since then, what changes have you seen in Canadian political discourse about money and wealth and what hasn't changed? Um, most things have changed for the uh, worse. <laughs> Um, yeah, the, the concentration of wealth in the hands of a very few people has been getting worse and worse in Canada and internationally, as you know. Um, I think there is more awareness. Um, can that awareness be turned into anything that changes this dynamic? Or are we just waiting for everything to collapse under its own weight and see what can be rebuilt? Um, I mean, maybe we are in the position of John of Patmos just waiting for the fall of Babylon and waiting to see what you can build in the ruins after that. That's that's a super depressing answer. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think on a, on a micro level, a lot of really interesting things came out of Occupy. Um my paper wouldn't have existed without it. A lot of interesting writing wouldn't have existed without it. There, There is an urban gardening movement in Toronto, which has its roots in Occupy, which probably wouldn't have existed otherwise. 
Um, there have been a number of mutual aid projects and connections made which, which have had Occupy roots. A lot of people met there, and a lot of networks got started there. And a lot of the, a lot of the grassroots mutual aid that we've seen during the pandemic, which really has, it, it has made me a little more confident that perhaps we can survive the fall of Babylon. <laughs> this was like a, a little weeny tiny test run. Um, and, and people's mutual aid did spring up in the midst of all this. I mean, every, you know, we're in a much more moment of a disintegration right now, but a lot of good things did happen. And some of those were rooted in relationships created during the Occupy movement. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I definitely, I've, I've seen, I've had more very grassroots community initiatives based on you know, common control, common sharing of, of resources. Um, at, uh, at, yeah, there's some really exciting stuff happening at the community level, uh, but uh, on the on the macro level, um, <laughs> seem to be heading heading faster and faster <laughs> towards crisis. So. Yeah, who knows? Who knows where we'll we'll be in five, ten years from now? Um, That's certainly something I've seen, noticed. Well, seen during the pandemic is the way in which it's accelerated disparities and and Fed resistance, even while resistance has high costs. Yeah, I know for sure uh, during the pandemic, I mean, there have been, uh, you know, countless online movements as well. Uh, you know, there was on Twitter, there was a, a whole thing for all leftists, uh, people who believed in mutual aid, people who believed in, in social supports and such. Um, there was a, a movement uh, with a hashtag, uh, no comrades under 1000. And the, the point of it was uh, there should be, you know, basically to create a network of people following each other. Ideally, no one should have less than a thousand followers. Um, you know, people just following each other so that you can have, uh, you know, an update uh, and a community online of people who are politically uh, motivated the same as, as oneself, uh, you know, to support you, to support others, you know, to create that sort of, you know, mutual aid benefactorship and, and that, really did explode there was so many people that you know created these sort of like you know coffee links or patreons you know purely just for mutual aid saying like hey you know i'm unable to pay rent or hey i'm unable to feed myself and my kids um you know if, if there are any other people who are believing in mutual aid or or in social support like you know if you want to support us that would be fantastic and and people did that it, it was a great you know distribution of of wealth between this community and talking to many of these people so many of them were in fact radicalized by the occupy movements and then further went into literature uh like you know conquest of bread and such to further understand you know the wealth disparities and the economic injustice so the occupy movement has has really over the past decade i think provided a lot of awareness but also action and inspiration to individuals yeah so one of the central ideas in your essay is the concept of unjust social systems as uh, structural sin 
And your you state that the global money economy um, may be as close to a direct example of original sin as any we can find. Can you unpack this a little bit for us? What is the difference between original sin and structural sin? Um, I think what I'm saying is there is no real difference between original sin and structural sin. The concept of original sin uh, has fallen into disrepute for a lot of good reasons. Um, it was used in, in some really quite bizarre ways over the history of the church and got weirdly tied up with sex as if sin was a sexually transmitted disease or something like that. Um, but the idea that we are born into sinful systems, which we did not choose and cannot control, and which begin shaping us even before we are born, we are shaped in utero by the economic conditions which surround us. And it's not our choice, and it's not in our control. And we are compelled to participate in this sinful system. Wherever we are in the world, whether we are the victims, or whether we are the privileged, or whether we're a bit of a mix of both at once, we are compelled from before the moment of our birth to participate in a system which is a system of injustice and inequity and structural sin. We can't escape it. We can't make it not be. We can't make it not shape us. We have been profoundly shaped by it in every moment of our existence. And that, to me, sounds like original sin. That sounds like what the doctrine of original sin is actually meaning to capture is this this sense that we are born in injustice we are shaped in injustice we cannot escape it we can't we can't just say i'm going to be good and just now we can't because everything that has shaped us in our lives and continues to shape us is preventing us from doing that We can't just say, well, I'm not going to live under capitalism now. I mean, I can say that, but my chances of putting it into yeah. practice are pretty minimal. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. That is such a mood. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, I don't think anything more relatable has yeah. been said on this podcast. Yeah. Honestly. Uh, that's, I mean, that's certainly... Um, connects with a lot of my experience of of church um, church and community in the in the past year 10 10 years or so as I remember I'm starting out as this idealistic undergrad thinking you know we're gonna build these alternative communities that are are you know that are better better places for people to live better ways for people to live um and uh they um it's like i and probably a lot of the people that that i've done church with have come to this kind of gradual um you know, increasing awareness of you know systemic oppression and, and privilege and how we we can't simply opt out of that, that you know, we have to be constantly aware of how 
how those systems operate within our communities. Yeah, I sort of think of it more now as as staging small escapes. We stage as many little escapes as we can, and perhaps they will add up to something bigger. But but we're, we can't get outside the system of our own efforts. Mm-hmm. When you say uh, we can find those little escapes, could you maybe like expand on that a little bit or give some examples of what you mean? I mean, some of it is very, very, you know, tedious stuff. Um, like, don't throw away food. You know, or don't, you know, if people throw away food, go into the dumpsters of supermarkets and recover it. Um, learn to grow food. Learn to repair your clothes so you're not buying new clothes. Learn to get away from this idea that if you don't buy new clothes, you look like shit. Um, you know, te teach yourself, teach yourself different economic practices. Consuming less, reusing, um, building, making, learning how to do practical things. Most of us have in in this society, in this particular part of the developed world, have been massively de-skilled. We have very few practical skills. If you think about, you know, if if civilization actually collapsed, what would I? What could I do that's useful? Um, you know, I know a bit about growing food. I could do that. I know a bit about preserving food. Um, I have rudimentary medic skills. And that's really about the limit of my usefulness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's actually interesting that you, you bring up those ideas uh, and, and those examples. Like, you know, I myself, I, I am uh, vegan because I don't want to participate in the, you know, mass consumption and the commercial uh excess uh production of of you know meat and meat products um minimalism is becoming a, a more and more uh growing not just aesthetic but movement and ideology uh you know the idea of like you don't need to have things you don't ha need to have new things especially clothes is like the biggest kind of thing that uh, that's been surrounding um you know you, we've been getting a lot more um focus into stuff like recycled materials and and such but i think what's maybe the the most interesting that you bring up is yeah like what you know actual skills do individuals have um you know it's like living in toronto uh you know it's like my dad taught me how to change a tire and to like fix most things in a car or to you know change light fixtures or to you know work with you know wood to like build a table or build my own desk right um but then like you know two blocks over is you know a couple of friends who you know have never had to wash a dish who have never had to cook their own meal who have never had to you know uh work with wood who have never had to uh grow their own plants who have never had to do any of these things and it's like but you know they have fantastic you know full-time jobs because they you know work in the business sector working with the economy doing international trade and stuff and it's just like yeah I guess it's it is it is one of those things of like uh you know finding how you can actively work against that or or to you know opt out of the participation in those small regards I think that is 
vital, not just for, you know, I guess working towards uh, a future after the fall of Babylon, but, uh, you know, I think it's also incredibly vital for, like, the mental health mm-hmm. of the individual as well, you know, to, to know, especially in the age of information, you know. Yeah, now we're... We have everything yeah. oh, sorry yeah i was gonna say we're we the, we're talking about a set of choices being made by people with privilege and that's important to talk about because most of the people who are going to be listening to this or reading my paper are people who do have some privilege we also need to be aware that for people who have been much more significantly deprived and victimized by the system the set of choices that is healthy for them to make that is good is life-giving for them to make that is a means of escape is different um people who are extremely poor in this society in again in in canada and a developed country so what i'm saying is is only true of this context often have a great deal of stuff, sometimes tremendous quantities of stuff, and it's all shit. And it breaks, and it's, it's you know, it, it's, throwaway, it's throwaway consumer trash because that's all that you can afford if you're poor. Yeah, um, yeah. And, landfill items. Yeah, I, so for, for people who have only experienced trash material culture, the opportunity to experience a material culture which is deep and rich and beautiful and true is, is I think, potentially also quite revolutionary. What I was actually doing out there, we we pick up discarded food from a no frills in Scarborough every day. Uh, so I was just uh, unloading and working out what we can use for our meal programs here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that um, that's actually what I one part of what I was interested in in asking about. Um, now that as you were talking about our relationships to material culture and how different those relationships are um, depending on varying levels of, of privilege. Um, so I know that uh, you and other people at St. Stephen's put a, a huge amount of time and, and resources into, well, I'm helping people to stay alive um, running uh, drop-in programs that support the basic needs of people who are homeless or deeply impoverished. Um, and my experience in working of, in these kind of contexts is that there's often a huge power imbalance uh, between those providing support and those receiving it. Um, and it can be hard to establish genuine human relationships um, both because of the power imbalance and out of the different 
the different relationships to material culture that you described generally, the differences in experience. Um, so I'm wondering if uh, your theology of money, or more broadly, a systemic perspective on money, um, offers any helpful principles for building relationships of solidarity across economic disparity? I don't know. I would say it certainly motivates one to want to do that. <laughs> Whether it helps one to do so effectively is is maybe a different question. Um, I mean, I think the first thing that is important and where sometimes things do fall down is that we need we need to acknowledge the power difference. We can't pretend that it doesn't exist. We can't pretend that our lives are not dramatically different and I can't pretend that I don't have more power. I do have more power. Um, I mean, within the context of the church programs, I am the person who has the final power, which is the power to ban people from the building. I've never exercised that power, but that doesn't change the fact that I have it, and that alters how people relate to me. It, inevitably, it does. The best I can do is to openly acknowledge that and to try to talk about how I manage that and not to expect that people are going to be my friend. Um, I think it is an extremely unfair expectation that people who are suffering greatly under this whole economic system will be my friends in order to make me feel better about the fact that I am giving them some basic necessities of life. <laughs> um, I think I have good relationships with a lot of people, but that's partly because I never presume that anyone wants to be my friend. <laughs> um, I think we've established very trusting relationships in, in a lot of cases. Um, I hope so. I hope, I, but but they're complex relationships, and we need to acknowledge that complexity. Um, the pandemic has made things much harder. It's created a lot of barriers in, you know, a situation which we had consciously tried to make an extreme low barrier situation. We have necessarily now had to create barriers, masks, capacity limits, rules about what people can and can't do. Um, the food is served in a less friendly way. We can't do buffets anymore. Um, all of these things have, have changed the dynamic of the, the meals and the drop-in here in ways that I really don't like, but which have been unavoidable. <laughs> um, one of the things we've, we've for many, many years tried to be very conscious about was that there should not be a line between the people who receive services and the people who attend services. <laughs> it's interesting the same word is used for both. But the people who come to the meals, who come to the drop-in, also come to the liturgies. 
um, since we've had to move online. That has not been the case. Because obviously, if you're living on the street, accessing a Zoom service is not going to be a thing you can do. Uh, and that's been a real painful loss. It has created a, a, a pretty sharp line division where I had worked really, really hard to, to minimize that division. And that's, that's been a difficult thing to work with. Um, I think we're, we've got a little bit of emergence from the pandemic happening now. Maybe there's some level of vaccination. We don't, we don't know how this is going to go. But it's, it's, it's creating a whole set of additional barriers that make things hard. Um, but in, in terms of access to material culture, I will say one of the great guiding inspirations of the Anglo-Catholic movement, and one reason that I identify very strongly with that, with that movement, was a sense that beauty should be accessible to everyone, that it is very important that the liturgy should be beautiful and that it should be beautiful in as multi-sensory a way as possible, that there should be visual and auditory, there should be smells, there should be music, there should be everything, because a church service is something that, at least in theory, everyone can access. It is a way of making beauty broadly available to people who have no beauty in their lives. To go to an art gallery or a concert or anything else, even if it's not financially expensive, which it often is, it requires a tremendous amount of social capital. And you need to have a certain kind of clothing, and you need to have a certain standard of personal hygiene, which maybe you can't maintain if you're only able to shower once a week. Um, there's a lot of barriers to beauty. And the, the part of the Anglo-Catholic inspiration is to try to make that beauty very broadly available to everyone. And I really hope that the next phase of the pandemic develops in such a way that we can get back to doing that. Because that's been a big part of what I try to do as a church leader. Yeah. Now that actually um, makes me think of some experiences um, from when I was involved with uh, with the Dale, which is a church community largely made up of um, of people living in Parkdale um, who are um, homeless or impoverished. Um, one being that the worship services of that congregation, it's based in, very much based in the Protestant tradition, um, and yet the members of that community made it very clear that, uh, or at least some some did, that it was important to have communion every week, um, which to me really speaks to the importance of that, you know, multi-sensory um, of embodied connection um, to to liturgy and you know connecting the material to the sacred, um, and the other was um, a few years back in that community that uh, photographer um, gave cameras to a number of community members, um, 
and seemed a little bit surprised that uh, that the photos that came back that these community members took um, very often were not um, uh, sort of images of gritty street life that he might have expected, but were pictures of the lake, the trees in the park. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the kind of the beauty, you know, the few, the few spaces in which beauty is accessible to everyone in the city. Well, Maggie, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today. Uh, we learned so much, and I'm sure our listeners did too. So thank you very much for, for being with us here today and answering our questions. All right. Thank you, and thank you for putting up with the interruptions. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks right. so much, Maggie. Okay. Thank um, you. Yeah. Doc, I'd love to hear what you're thinking during our, an interview. Uh, what What struck you about our conversation? Yeah, I really thought it was uh, interesting what Maggie was trying to do in, you know, starting a conversation um, as opposed to, you know, providing all the answers or to make an action plan. And I think that's uh, a, a value that has been less on people's minds or people have been less, uh, you know, open to, to that idea, right? To like, you know, think about looking inward and to start asking questions, which is very much like what the humanities as an academic field is about and theology is in you know, that humanities field. Um, and so, you know, you mentioned before with uh, with the Cahoots Festival, people talking about, like, how do I manage my family's budget? It's like people want the answers, but people don't want to, like, explore these ideas necessarily um, or they don't want to uh, think too much about, you know, their participation in, in these things. And so I think there's, like, a bit of a disconnect um, between those two things that, you know, needs to be discussed. But I, I think what's really interesting is that Maggie brings up this new interpretation of, uh, you know, original sin or rather structural sin, as she refers to it. And I thought that was super interesting because, you know, the way that original sin is documented in the Judeo-Christian and Islamic texts, um, it's very much in a in a broad sort of open interpretation way as as much thing as much of the bible is and so what i found really interesting about that was that it kind of removed the ownership of the original sin or the structural sin away from the individual who was born into this with no choice but rather saying you know it's, it's not necessarily your fault that you've done this it is the fact that you were born into a system that is a sinful system. You are born into an unfair and unjust society. And that is what that is. And, and you are obligated to participate in it. And so in that way, you are obligated to participate in this structural sin or this original sin um, purely by the happenstance of your birth. And I think that's so much more helpful to think about in a theological lens because it takes away you know, I guess like the, the, the older Catholic ideas of, of guilt, right? And, and that internalized guilt, that internalized, uh, you know, maybe even self-hatred is how it's been described before. You know, talking about that makes it more of like, okay, well, it's like we have a possibility to go past that. We have a possibility to, you know, 
make this better. We have a possibility to remove this structural sin. You know, we have a, a way to remove this original sin from ourselves and work forward, right? It's that same idea that she was saying, like, you know, it's like, you know, after the fall of Babylon and those who took the government's money versus those who, you know, stood up and against oppression. Um, it's it's about that choice that can be made. And I think it, it, it brings the idea of choice and i think it brings a a much more larger sense of agency as we have free will um you know we have the freedom to work against the system as as we choose and it's a bit i mean it's more complicated than just choosing to be in it and choosing not to be in it and i think maggie also talked about you know the little things that people can do um and i think it's it's funny to to hear about that from someone who's obviously participating in so many things and maybe even close to burnout um, like, you know, Maggie is participating in so many different organizations and doing so much work towards the community and against the system, um, you know, providing those little opportunities and those little choices in day-to-day life helps reduce the overall anxiety of it. And that's so important. Yeah, I'm I'm actually kind of amazed at how much... Um, how much the theology of money um, and this idea of um, money, the economic system as structural sin lines up with um, lines up with the lens of of oppression and privilege. Um, not understanding that you know it's it's not it's not our fault that we are in this system and that we have to participate in the system that. Um, it's that it's unavoidable um, to end up being complicit in some ways, and and it is our responsibility to um, um, to um, use the power that we have in um, in the most ethical ways possible to make the most ethical choices possible um, in in our own situations. Um, I know that's, I think some of the reason that church communities, well, people in general don't like to, often don't like to talk about economic injustice is that it can be so overwhelming and so depressing. Um, and, and yet I, I can, I can actually see a lot of resources in the Christian theological tradition around kind of the daily practice of self-examination and, and repentance, you know, not, not in a kind of, not in the sense of kind of guilt and pleading for forgiveness, but in the sense of, you know, choosing, choosing every day to change what you can change. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I mean, I think that yeah, that even goes to the Gospels, right? I mean, looking at the fact that, you know, Christ died for our sins, but that's a very simplified way of saying Christ died because he was a political activist actively working against the oppressive regime of the Roman Empire. Um, you know, I, I think it's really important to, to talk about that because especially when you have so many, uh, you know, super conservative Christians, it really sounds like an oxymoron when you actually read 
these theological frameworks of how you could be like a, a, a financially or economically conservative or even socially conservative Christian. Um, and, you know, maybe people are going to be mad at me for saying that, but like, it just, it's, it's true. <laughs> um, you know, this economic, uh, system that we have you know based on disparity and and the labor of others it's it's horrendous and if you look at the texts it, it directly talks about this and even if you look at you know i i took like an economics course in my undergrad and one of the first things and and really the thing that really struck out uh to me was the fact that in economics there are two forms of labor. There are two forms of labor that are pivotal for economic and social political success. Um, and that is formal labor and informal labor. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think the Bible or the Gospels or even the, um, you know, rabbinical texts uh, talk much about this, but the, the Quran does. Uh, so I do want to mention that because, you know, Formal labor is designated as, you know, participating in, like, the business or, or you know, the the larger functions of society. So, you know, trade and, uh, you know, skilled labor and, you know, things that you would go and get a job for, right? Like, you would go and, like, you know, apply for a job, get paid, get a payroll, whatever. Um, but informal work is is just as vital to the long-term success of an economy. Um, and informal work is described as the things that you don't get paid for but are vital, which is very much associated with, like, you know, maintaining a proper household, right? And, like, raising your kids so they can be productive members of society, right? Or they can do the things that they need to do to make society better, right? Uh, education is one of those, right? And, you know, making sure and supporting those who are laboring, um, is one of those things, right? So, like, you know, when you have the idea of, like, a, you know, I guess, like, a nuclear family, right? Like, we are, like, those traditional, you know, marriage values or whatever that people call it. Um, you know, you have, like, usually it's, like, the man goes out, does work, that's formal labor, and the woman is, is meant to, you know, keep the house in an orderly fashion to take care of the kids and to, um, you know, cook and you know, provide food on the table and to support their partner. And all of those things is that, that that's informal labor. And that is just as vital to society in, in, in the long run, because that's how you create a, a longer lasting civilization. You have to work towards the future, right? You have to make sure that these things are happening. And so that's why people had these like traditional values or whatever. But, you know, in, in Islam, uh, you know, in the Quran, it actually dictates that if, uh, you know, say, well, what they say is like, if a man is working and the woman is not working, um, like in that, you know, traditional or I guess like formal labor, um, if they are, if, if the wife is meant to stay at home and do that informal work, then they should be getting a wage to create a level of independence from their husband. So they're not relying on it because that, that is vital to a society and so they talk about these things like if you are doing these things you should be getting some sort of compensation in the economy for such things yes that that is really cool <laughs> yeah it's and and it's necessary like you need to be thinking about these things like people say like oh it's just like well it's like why would you pay for a nanny it's like well because that work 
is work that is is productive to society and is needed to be recognized so there needs to be some sort of compensation for that right and you know if you have a housewife usually i mean people like share bank accounts or whatever like when they're married or a house husband uh would share bank accounts with their wife but like you need to have those levels of stability and you need to support that and and that is on those doing the formal work the those doing the formal work need to support those who are helping them through the informal work because it, we're all in this together and we're all working towards this together you know it's it's vital that all of these parts are played together and done with respect and mutual yeah honestly just mutual respect for one another yes yeah that's that's a piece that feels like often feels like it's really eroding in our social context that you know as you know as more privileged women are you know moving into um you know, well-paid careers that so much of that um, domestic work and care work is getting displaced onto um, poor, usually racialized women who, to whom, um, to whom the more, you know, well, who are not being treated with the same kind of respect and sense of responsibility that someone would would um, offer some would treat someone who's a member of their family yeah precisely so it's just it's it's necessary and and these support systems need to be put in place and i think what maggie is getting at is that islamic idea of social support because we're all in this together and we're all doing this together so we need to be you know providing that mutual aid we need to be you know, working against the things that are keeping us apart, against the things that are actively disenfranchising people. I, I think that's, that, yeah, basically Maggie is on her way to Islam. <laughs> <laughs> or <laughs> I was actually, um, a piece that I was thinking of when you were mentioning, um, when, when you were talking about all this is, uh, a biblical interpretation that that I've heard Maggie preach on that I've haven't heard from anyone else, um, which is um, Jesus Jesus as as a man who shows respect for women by doing women's work. That Jesus is a man who feeds people and. Um, cares for people who are sick and disabled and um, shows regard for children and uh, washes his disciples' feet, all of which in that social context were almost exclusively women's work and frequently the work of enslaved people. Precisely so. And I, and he did that with, with care and love and respect. Mm-hmm. Um and so, yeah, it's exactly that. I mean, Jesus says, you know, I, I give you a new commandment, uh, you know, love one another and do as I do, right? Follow follow me, follow what I do and do as I do and you will be saved, right? 
Um, that's the whole thing. And, and it's to love one another, to respect one another and, and to do as he, he would do. So yeah, it's kind of that WWJD, like what would Jesus do? It's like, well, Jesus, uh, you know, rolled up his sleeves and, you know, did this work, no matter if he, like, no matter if people thought that it was beneath him. Right. Uh, you know, he, he opted out of these social ways uh, or rather these social prisons, um, in the ways that he could, right. He spoke up against, these things and uh, that's exactly what i think maggie is talking about in her essay as well it's like you know starting that conversation of like well how can we you know actively do what christ is teaching us to do right how can we actively opt out of this structural sin yeah so um something i was very curious about um when uh when you mentioned um what i'm your your ex- um, experience, your connections to uh, to Muslim communities, um, was the the tradition of of Islamic banking. Um, as I know uh, what we were talking about with as you we were discussing with Maggie, um, our global economic system is based on is based on debt, um, which the Bible very clearly. Um, condemns as as usury as an exploitative system that should be that should be avoided um and i all that i the only thing i know about islamic banking is that it is intended to be a financial system that is not based on usury um so I, I yeah i'd love to hear anything that that you can share about that yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I'm not like uh, an expert in in Islamic banking. Um, I honestly haven't heard that term much. But what I can talk about is is like what the Quran says and what I was taught in like being raised uh, in a Muslim community and such. And that is, uh, you know, there are certain things where you are taught. Um, you know, it's uh, how do I how do I word this? Uh, so in the, you know, there's the old pro- proverb, I think it is in the Bible, you know, it's like you, you teach, uh, sorry, you give a man a fish and he eats for a day and you teach a man to fish and, you know, he can eat for a lifetime. Um, and in Islam, they kind of talk about this a little bit. Uh, and what I've heard from imams is what you should do is you should um, not just teach the man to fish, but you should teach the man to fish. And you should, if you have an extra fishing rod, give him the fishing rod. And then maybe even, you know, if you have the ability to do so, loan him uh, some money to start up maybe uh, a business or to start up some sort of financial structure. Um, And that would be a loan probably with no interest. Um, But to, you know, pay that money forward and to, uh, you know, help the individual so that he can create a system where he is feeding his family, where he is feeding those in need, where he is doing all these things uh, purely out of the goodness of his heart, which was only possible after the goodness that you have done out of your heart. So it's kind of more about that. It's, it's not just about teaching someone to do something or helping someone in the time of need. It's about setting them up for long-term security with those new skills so that that's really what like you know the muslim teachings the from from what i've been taught uh are more targeted towards it's about longer lasting sustainability 
with you know those resources you know so yeah it's it's about making sure that everyone has enough and and making sure that people do but also not necessarily always framing it as like a handout like oh yeah i'm giving you this money so you can get a boat right it's i'm loaning you this money so that you have a boat and when you are in a financial position where you are making enough money to put some aside to pay me back then you can pay me back and that's great right and even that like you know inspires or or theoretically what it does is it inspires the individual to work hard and to do things well so that they can get to that point where they are able to put money away and to save things and to you know have those resources in a sense of comfort so that that money can be paid back or even better yet paid forward right so it's it's not just about like you know feeding the hungry it's not just about you know giving uh people like you know it's not just about providing skills for those who are disenfranchised it's about providing skills and providing the resources and providing a system that will help them throughout their lifetime and ideally throughout their children's lifetime and their children ahead of them you know if you get that you know you give them the loan for the boat they get the boat they become a fisher and now they have something they can give on to their kids right and then their kids can give on to their kids and maybe they can accumulate a certain amount uh, of you know excess wealth whatever to pay that back towards someone else who needs it right and to to do that that is the obligation that we are that we are given by a law right or god right that is that is our obligation yeah and that's and that's a system that that actually is sustainable because i mean the whole um premise of a system based on on debt and um and interest only works with the assumption of infinite economic growth that it's possible to repay what's being lent with interest without ending up worse off and yeah well i mean that i think that's implying that uh you know this economic model is uh you know has a beneficial ethos um i I think it's more safe to say that you know the, the the system with with debt and with interest and with all these things is is actively against that it it is designed in a way to keep those who are disenfranchised continuously disenfranchised i mean you look at the fact that you know millennials are constantly talking about the fact that we can't own a home right and you know generation x even with all of you know millennial student loans and everything generation x is still the most in debt generation ever and that's because, you know, there was a system set up by the generation before them, which was the baby boomers, right? They gave into economics, they did all these things that worked really beneficially for them. But then it set up this lifestyle and, you know, I guess this like social wealth or these social contracts that Maggie was talking about, but like, you know, showering and, and wearing the right clothes and having the right things and having the nice things, all that stuff, you know, that was all set up into the psyche and the mindset of Gen X people but you know these gen x folks didn't have that same amount of income right they didn't have these things working towards them by like you know like the greatest generation before the boom baby boomers right so it's like they didn't have this huge economic boost to like help them and to provide this great amount of wealth and and you know the inflation of 
prices for things and the inflation for wages, uh, you know, it's it's not on par, right? So then you have this like huge disparity between you know what is expected of you and what you have to, what you feel like you have to have versus what you can actually afford to have right and then millennials are seeing that and being like oh shit we have nothing we yeah we like, there, there's there's nothing left for us right and then now you have like the generation z kids right like my little brother who's just like you know when i was talking about the fact that like oh yeah you know it's like I, i'm paying a little bit extra on my credit card interest but that's going to boost my credit score you know more uh over the long run so that maybe i can afford a house someday he's looking at me he's just like you think there are going to be houses left when like the <laughs> world is on fire mm. you know yep. it's it's yeah there, there's no hope in that generation you know um as as a whole obviously individuals are um you know different in their mindsets but you know there there is so little hope <laughs> well um, certainly no hope of going back to going back to kind of, you know, the American dream of, you know, everyone having middle-class lifestyles. But, you know, once, uh, I mean, like Maggie was talking about this, once Babylon falls, things could go in many possible directions. Yeah, 100%. And I, I thought it was really interesting when Maggie brought up the idea of, like, the fall of Babylon and moving on after that. Um, because all I could think of was just like my, my little brother born in 2002, purely Gen Z kid, you know, just being like, okay, cool. But like Babylon didn't have to worry about like the, the earth dying because like that, that's, that's what we are in our globalist society. You know, like Babylon was one area, um, you know, it was a city state and it collapsed and like there was, there, there were other civilizations going on around, right? Like there, there were other people, there were other places to go. There were so many things to do. Like after the fall of Babylon, after the fall of the Roman empire, like there was outside resources. There was still stuff to be there. There was still resources in those areas to be used by those remaining. But like in this globalized society that we have, you know, post cold war um, in you know the, the 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 way that we have been transforming the earth in the anthropocene um do we still actually have room for the fall of babylon or or is that just going to be the end for us like it, it, it's it's that's the question i think that really comes up is like do we do like do we have the patience or or rather like can we wait out until the fall of Babylon or is the fall of Babylon just going to be this time the end of it all? Because like, yeah, if, if we don't have resources, if, if we are, if the planet is inhospitable, then how do we move forward? Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I don't think we can just sit down and sit back and wait and wait for the system to collapse. Um, <laughs> things are, things are already far too dire to to keep to keep going in this direction but, uh, but yeah i i do i do actually really appreciate the the gen z awareness of how fundamentally i'm unsustainable and unhealthy our economic system is and how urgent it is to to transform it yeah it's we're living through history isn't that so much fun <laughs> yeah. yeah 
All right. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, our, our debrief has been going up for half an hour now, so I think we might need to sign. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess we should wrap this up. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully that was a good mic drop. <laughs> yeah. All right, planet's dying. Peace out. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>